The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. How does what essentially is a virus possibly treat cancer? Well, this particular virus deals with cancer in two different ways, in a sequential way. The first thing it does is that it infects pretty much every cell in your body, but only reproduces and kills cells that have a certain genetic profile that is associated with cancer. And so you can think of this sort of stealthy virus going around your entire body and it infects everything. And uh, when it hits the right signature genetically, which is cancer, it'll reproduce itself and kill that cancer uh, in a few days. And it's quite on-off. It's very market. That first action actually causes a secondary immune response, which is probably responsible for the longer term effects that we see. So we really do believe that this virus is very unique and has a very unique mode of action that to help us combat cancer. How many different types of cancers have been treated or are currently being treated under your clinical trial programs? We've looked at 13 cancers formally, and then you have another half a dozen or so cancers with patients that have come into our early studies, which are more or less all comer studies to, to take a look at safety. So we're getting a very good sense of where the agent works and where it doesn't work. Of course, nothing works on everything. That's a really important tool for us going forward as we look forward to finishing off the development of this particular product. Now, I took a look at your website, and of course, clinical trials are listed on the website, and you are currently treating or at least undergoing clinical studies for myeloma. Explain what myeloma is and what your status is as far as completing these studies are concerned, beginning new ones. We have a whole large family of different types of cells floating around in your bloodstream. And many of them are produced in your bone marrow and some are produced in places like your spleen. And each one of those cells has a different function and they do different things. Some combat disease in a couple of different ways. Some carry oxygen, some scavenge waste byproducts and so on and so forth. And the type of cells that cause multiple myeloma are actually part of the immune system. They produce actually antibodies, which are an integral part of the immune system. And they're mostly found in the bone marrow. That's where most of their home is. So multiple myeloma is a disease of those cells. It's quite a serious disease. Patients have very poor outcomes. They tend to die. Most of them die within five years. And it's a serious problem. One of the sort of 
odd side effects of it is, is that the antibodies that are produced by these cells are malformed when they go cancerous. And so when they come out through your kidneys and into your urine, they can cause a lot of damage into your kidneys. So you actually quite often see patients that have, have kidney malfunction. So real lysin, fortunately for us, this virus actually gets into the bone marrow. In our early studies, uh, we've actually shown that the majority of those myeloma cells are actually infected by this virus and killed by this virus. And it's quite remarkable. I have to say, I mean, quite unexpected. We're very pleased to see this very large thing called a virus would actually get into your bone marrow and do what it's doing. And so what we're doing is several early stage studies where we're looking at combining our product with other existing products that are out there. There's two products called proteasome inhibitors that we're combining it with and a third one out of a drug class that people are calling IBITS now. They're solidamide derivatives that is about to start. And that will all lead to, we expect, a, you know, a final phase three registration study looking at real license in combination with some combination of drugs to treat multiple myeloma. It's very exciting for us. It's our first for into non-solid tumors, if you want to think of it that way. And the results today have been actually been quite clear-cut and quite definitive. Now, unexpected early osteoporosis can indeed be a sign of myeloma. If you see signs of that in yourself or in someone else, should you get it checked out for possible myeloma or what's usually the procedure? This seems like it's a new category of diagnosis. Fortunately for us, multiple myeloma is actually one of the easier cancers to diagnose. I mean, some cancers are very difficult to diagnose. I mean, if you, we talked about pancreatic cancer before. I mean, the early stages of pancreatic cancer are akin to having, you know, an upset tummy or you're feeling a little off that day or your digestion doesn't feel quite right. By the time you get in and get it checked out for specifically for cancer, it's spread and it's too late. And the pancreas and the pancreas head, as we call it, is in an odd place in your body. It's kind of shielded by everything. So it's not that easy to get to. So there's lots of reasons that cancers like pancreatic cancer get diagnosed late. Multiple myeloma is different that way. I mean, there's a couple of very easy signals. You can do a, a bone marrow tap, which sounds aggressive, but compared to major surgery to get to a tumor is really easy. And you just do a smear on a microscope slide and take a look at it. And you can tell instantly if a person's got multiple myeloma. And the other signal is that there's this abnormal protein that's excreted in the urine. So you can just do a urine test, which is marvelous. And fortunately for us, a lot of the other cancers are heading towards that direction. I mean, we're getting to the point now where we can do some cancer diagnosis by blood tests, which is easy and routine. And then that's also going towards urine tests. And I mean, the Diagnostics people that work in, in diagnostics are performing miracles and moving us up the chain to getting earlier and earlier diagnosis. And I mean, that's where a lot of the real progress is being made in our business. So pretty soon we're going to have urine tests for most common cancers. And then how easy is that? And I think they're just going to get routine tests and people just get them done routinely, whether they have symptoms or not, which is exactly where we want to go. But right now, multiple myeloma is kind of a tip of the iceberg of the good side. If you go look for it, you'll find it without too much difficulty. In a previous broadcast, we spoke about pancreatic cancer, which by all means can be fatal and most often is. And of course, now we're talking about myeloma. You don't take the easy subjects, do you? Realizing is interesting in a way is that the genetic defects that cause realizing to be able to replicate are more common and more aggressive cancers. And a further complication is that you progress through the cancer therapy sequence. So what we call first-time patients are treated. Second line is when they failed first line and they get treated again with something else. As you go through all those lines of therapy, you actually enrich for those genetics that actually allow this virus 
to do their you know, do its business. And they're already enriched in what we call metastatic disease, which is disease when it's spread beyond the primary tumor. And so diseases that are very aggressive and tend to fail other therapies, as time goes by, actually are more suitable to be used with this particular agent. So there's that logic or a rationale for us to be uh, going after those cancers. But yes, it is unusual for us you know, to see a company focusing on cancers that tend to be intractable by most other therapies. Of course, I know there's many people listening to the program that perhaps have been diagnosed or they know someone that's been diagnosed with a serious form of cancer, not that cancer's not serious in any category, for the very first time. And they're listening to this program and they're thinking, well, okay, how do I know that I have the best access to this kind of care? Even though you're undergoing clinical trials right now, the real license per se isn't available for everyone at the moment because it's still being tested. So what would you say to those folks? For any exploration of therapy, and not just for real license, but for anybody's new underdevelopment therapies, for people to go to a marvelous website that's called clinicaltrials.gov, and there's a listing of most, if not all, clinical studies ongoing in the United States, and you can actually search by terms. You can search type in pancreatic cancer, or you can type in real license if you're interested in a specific thing. And you'll come up with all the existing, if in the pancreatic cancer, all the existing clinical trials that are enrolling or their status, and it gives you contact points, and it allows patients and the doctors treating those patients the ability to seek out these new experimental therapies while they're under development. And it's unique in the world. It's a very impressive capability tool for patients and for doctors to use to find new therapies that are not yet approved for their patients and for the patients themselves to find them for themselves. Let's talk about Oncolytics Biotech as a potential investment vehicle for those of us who like to do smart things with their money. When one of these trials is successfully completed and you can say Reolicin can successfully treat this particular form of cancer, whether it's melanoma, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's cervical cancer, pancreatic cancer, any of those things. When is it a company maker? When does everyone begin to look at Oncolytics Biotech in multiples of 10 or 100 times of where it's at now? There's a, a number of events in biotech companies that add value in the marketplace and tend to add lasting value in the marketplace. And the first is clear-cut evidence in what we call a randomized clinical study. So when you have a, two or more groups of patients being treated, one of which gets the current standard of care and the other one gets the current standard of care with your agent added in. And so the experiment is adding in that agent and you compare those two groups. So the first clear-cut evidence coming out of a randomized clinical study is really one of the major very first lasting additions to value in the marketplace. And we have five randomized phase two studies, reading out data in the next year, and we're starting several more this year. So you have those potential inflection points to give you value. The second major point of inflection is when people are actually in phase three studies. When companies tend to announce they've actually started a phase three study or a registration study, depending on their terminology, that is another inflection point. And Oncolytics is in the planning process right now for at least two phase three programs that we hope to have filed and approved this year. The third point is always product approval. That's a little while off for us yet. But you know, when people file for product approval and get product approval, that's always an inflection point, however they do it, because there's a variety of ways of doing it before products are approved and after products are approved. But on first product sales, that's really the last major inflection point for getting those big multiples of valuation. So there's really those four things to look out for. And for Oncolytics, the ones to look out for in the earlier term are randomized clinical data out of phase twos and the initiation of a phase three study. In summary, what are we going to see this year in that regard? 
Well, we should see data out of those randomized phase two studies, most of them this year, and there's five of those. We should also see one and possibly two phase three studies approved and announced in this calendar year. So we should see quite a bit of news flow. I'm certainly hoping so. I mean, news flow is, of course, the lifeblood of publicly traded companies, period, but biotech companies in particular, and more a matter of circumstance rather than direct planning where you happen to have that happy circumstance for 2016 and early 2017. It's quite a bit of news flow. You're one of the busiest CEOs I speak to on this program. You're constantly on the road. You're based in Calgary. Why are you traveling so much? Well, Calgary is a wonderful place, and I look at the Rocky Mountains every day when I get up and I walk to work, and I'm in the Rockies quite a bit. I spent a lot of my childhood in the mountains, and that's home turf, and that's really why we're in Calgary is because I love the mountains. Calgary is not a center of, of biomedical research or pharmaceutical you know, activity. You can literally count all the biotech companies in Calgary on your left or right hand, not both of them. So for us to do research and to do clinical trials, I mean, we've done clinical trials in 13 or 14 countries over the lifetime of the company, mostly in Europe and North America, and having shareholders scattered across the planet all leads you to being on a plane a lot of the time. So, you know, I have to touch base at the clinical sites, touch base with our researchers, which are scattered across the world, also touch base with my shareholders shareholders who are scattered largely across the world as well. And that leads to a lot of airplane time. My biggest domestic airline, which is Air Canada, gets a lot of my uh, travel dollars. And a little disturbing when you know all the flight crews and we talk about each other's dogs and children and how such and such doing in their school program and things like that. But that's the result of living in a place that doesn't necessarily have a lot of activity in it. Considering how busy you are, how are you feeling all the questions that you must be getting from around the world concerning Oncolytics Biotech? We have an active outreach program. We investor relations and public relations activities in Europe and Canada and the United States primarily. And we try to answer as many or all of the comments and questions that are the direction as the other direction as well. It's a large effort, but it's a commitment on our company to try to interact with everybody that wants to interact with us. And we either seek them out or they seek us out. That's one of the, actually the more enjoyable parts of the business is, is interacting with both investors, interested parties, and patients and patient inquiries. You know, when you get up in the morning, that's the part of the day that actually drives pretty much everybody in the company to feel good about their day is those kind of interactions. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I think we learn something new each time we chat. Thanks for joining us today on the program. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the OTC as BCCEF and on the CSE as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas resulting from abandoned mining operations. Backtech's core technology called bioleaching employs naturally occurring bacteria harmless to both humans and the environment to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. Ross, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. What is bioleaching and why is it a so-called green technology? Bioleaching, basically, if you follow our tag, which is our bugs eat rocks, is effectively bacteria that, I guess, digest sulfides in a contained environment, which is, in our case, large stainless vats. And what they do is 
is they liberate metal through the eating, as it were, of the sulfide that have got all the metals tied together. It's environmental because you're not releasing sulfuric acid out into the environment coming out of tailings, which happens over time. Where have you successfully deployed this technology around the world? We've built three plants to date, one in China, two in Australia. The one in Australia, it was in Tasmania, ran for 15 years uninterrupted. It's been closed now, though, due to the mining out of the actual ore deposit. The plant in China that we built in 2001 and subsequently doubled in 2008 is still a toll-treating facility for arsenopyrite concentrates that are produced in China and in other areas as far away as Greece, I believe. It would seem that this type of technology, would, which basically takes a look at mining tailings, which are ugly and all over the world but can be mineral rich, it would seem that this type of technology is a cheaper way of bringing gold, silver, and copper to market as compared to mining assays that are untouched in a market that is still somewhat depressed. It's a tough row for mining companies. How much cheaper is the cost? Where do you see this as a possible company maker for other companies that are struggling right now? You just have to look at the fact that you're not sinking a shaft or you're not digging a big hole in the ground. And so all the capital and all the drilling and all the you know the necessary work that has to go into an economic plan to, to develop a mine doesn't exist. I mean, we effectively, our product is sitting on surface. It's as easy as using flotation to separate sulfide minerals, which is what we want to go into the bioleach tanks. For less than $10 million, you can build a plant that will process 40 tons of concentrate a day with some very impressive grades, especially from the projects we're looking at in South America right now. On a cost basis, I would say that for bioleaching, it's about $200 a ton of material that's being processed. You have other costs associated with it, obviously, whether it be buying the concentrate from uh, artisanal miners or creating your own concentrate by producing it through flotation. But compared to all-in costs related to mining versus treating tailings, it's a fraction. Where's the real opportunity for investors right now? It would seem like you have a score of potential customers around the world. At this point, in early 2016, what are the major hurdles and how can we overcome them? I would say that as far as the major hurdles, it's one, it's access to capital. And we're not alone in that field because the junior markets have been under siege now for several years. But that really is the biggest problem we have. There isn't a day that goes by that I'm not picking up the phone or answering an email on yet another project. Last week was British Columbia. The problem is doing the work that is necessary to get the project to the stage where you say, yes, we're going to build this. And by that, I'm saying drilling some 30-foot holes in sand, effectively taking samples, doing the assay work to determine how much metal is actually in the tailings, and then doing the bioleach test work to make sure that the material is amenable to bioleaching. Not big dollars, but dollars we don't have right now. And those dollars are yours to spend potentially because the company doesn't have to spend them. And I mean, these inquiries that you're getting, these folks don't necessarily have the resources to help you develop the property, the tailings, more or less. They're counting on you to come in, and there's an equity split in the resource, correct? Correct. And the problem that we have, of course, is that they look to us to spend all the money up front to develop the project to the stage where we finance a plant for, say, 8 to $10 million. There's no shortage of people out there with money for plants. Everybody in the game out there today wants to buy into cash flow, but it's the chicken and egg scenario. What comes first? Unfortunately, in this case, it's the chicken, and the chicken is very expensive, and we don't have the money to feed the chicken. Russ, let's talk about the artisanal miners or small miner aspect of this. There's a second revenue stream. Tell us about it. Well, 
last year I met a fellow of mine named Dr. Marcelo Vega from the University of British Columbia, who for the past 10 years has been working in Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Nicaragua, specifically targeting people that use mercury to amalgamate gold that they've mined literally with a pick and a shovel. Artisanal miners refers to the small miners, the hundreds of thousands of people that earn their livelihood through producing an ounce of gold every two days. I mean, it's quite something. The reality is the use of mercury over the longer term leads to, most cases, death, but also paralysis, central nervous system malfunction. So he decided that he had to educate the people that are doing this on a daily basis to stop using mercury, but use flotation as an alternative, which is a great idea. The problem is, is that the arsenic levels in the countries I've just mentioned tends to be very, very high. And when you concentrate something, you get an even higher concentration of that particular element. Using bioleaching, of course, you can stabilize the arsenic as a ferric arsenate. That's something that we've done many times in the past. And I think every bioleach plant in the world treats arsenopyrite effectively because of the ability to stabilize arsenic. So what these people are doing is producing these very, very high-grade gold concentrates. We're talking five ounces per ton, but they're also producing arsenic in the range of 15 to 20 percent, which effectively makes it unsaleable to a smelter or to a roaster. They're limited by the amount of arsenic they're allowed to burn on an annual basis. So you've done the noble thing, which is to create these concentrates and avoid using mercury, but you kind of got yourself into a bit of a corner because you can't sell the arsenopyrate because the arsenic's too high. So enter Bactec, building small-scale bioleach facilities in places like southern Ecuador, northern Peru, where we have a joint venture with Duran Ventures, specifically targeting this type of production, and eventually Colombia. They don't have to be big plants. These can be five, six million dollar plants that have paybacks with under a year, especially when you're treating that high grade of gold. So what is the average return on investment, let's say? It's off the scale. The numbers are ridiculous, really, when you think about it. But as I say, your payback on the capital is less than a year, and effectively you're doing a great thing for the environment. Southern Ecuador and northern Peru is very contaminated with mercury, and it's because the miners would try to use mercury on this ore, and then they would just throw it away into the river or over their shoulder. Effectively, that's the material that we want to target. Tell us more about Peru and how you see that as a revenue stream for Bactec. Well, fortunately for us, we met a fellow named Jeff Reeder from Duran Ventures, and Duran was joining the legions of, say, Vancouver-based companies that were building these processing plants in Peru, but effectively just pursuing the oxide material that's produced by these artisanal miners. There's no magic to it. When there's no magic to something and anybody can do it, your margins suffer, and we've already seen a couple of them drop by the wayside who just can't compete. The idea with Duran was, look, target the sulfide markets. Remember, there's easy sulfides and there's difficult sulfides. Our bailiwick is the difficult side. The oxides are easy. So what they're doing is they're building a 100-ton-a-day flotation plant right now near Trujillo. It's an exceptional location. It's got tailings for 50 years. It's got water. It's got power. It's about 10 kilometers from the ocean where there's a port. So it's going to be a good place to eventually build a bioleach plant to start treating the arsenopyrate that these gentlemen are going to be buying from artisanal miners. The goal here is to process arsenopyrates that we purchase from artisanal miners in, in northern Peru. Again, relatively inexpensive capital, which is the key. Well, there's plenty of money sitting on the sidelines right now that's taking a look at the sector. Fund managers, high-value investors that are determining how they can obtain the biggest return on their dollar right now. How much capital do you need to advance the project in Peru then, Ross? Very little. When you're talking mining dollars, about probably two hundred to $250,000. What we have to do is identify who the miners are that are producing this material, and then we need a contractual relationship with them. So hopefully it would be some sort of a cooperative that says, I will deliver to you 40 tons a day or 20 tons a day 
of arsenopyrite. That's all that has to be done on the exploration side. It's identifying the people that are already producing the material. The $250,000 is, is predominantly made up of the bioleach test work that has to be done, so we know what type of bells and whistles to put on this particular bioleach plant. It's peanuts. What essentially does the company have to give up in order to secure that $250,000? It's crazy because the margins are so high, we have the ability to give up an NSR, that smelter royalty, for the funds. Each project is different, but each project still has very, very high margins. Preferably, what we'd like to do is some sort of a, an equity fundraiser that maybe raise a half a million dollars. But it's a small number in mining, and people just don't really want to get off their behinds to do the work for a half a million dollars. So we end up trying to do it ourselves. Let's talk about the share structure right now. Well, we're relatively tight. We've got 43 million shares outstanding. One group out of England holds about 40% of the company. Other investors include Yamana Gold, Baker Steel in London, and a lot of, I guess you'd call them high net worth people that are people that I know that I've brought into the stock as well. So there's a real opportunity potentially right now. When you get between $250,000 and $500,000 invested into this one project in Peru, there's a real opportunity for not only return on investment for those individuals, but for your shareholders when this happen and also when the market does turn around, correct? Correct. If I was an investor looking at the junior market right now, I would be very, very skeptical if if I was putting capital into a company that was drilling holes in the ground. Just don't think the market appreciates good drill holes, maybe for a day or two. But the reality is this you really have to produce something, i.e. a cash flow in a market like this to survive. People are not investing in companies that drill holes in the ground. So effectively, by us having our cake sitting right on the surface, it puts us way, way ahead as far as getting to that production situation that you need. As an investor and as a journalist, I'm looking at companies right now that are either in production or close to being in production with regard to presenting them to my audience specifically. And you potentially could be one of those companies in a heartbeat. It's very difficult to raise, this is a theme obviously that I'm just keep harping on here. It's very hard to raise capital to finance the GNA, the day-to-day operating money that's needed. We're lucky in that I've got a lot of consultants who I know very well who have said, you know what, Ross, we'll worry about the money later. Let's get this thing across the line. So I'm very fortunate to have access to geologists, environmental people, to push these things along as inexpensively as we can. Unfortunately, you still have to do the bioleach test work, which is going to be the more expensive part of the puzzle. Wouldn't you think that a company like yours might be a very, very viable solution to mining companies around the world, especially here in the U.S. that are facing fines right now? federal fines? I would say for us, the best opportunities lie where the mining company is long gone. And what's left behind is a legacy that is being dealt with by a government. The governments just don't have the same goal line as the mining companies. Mining companies want to save money. They've effectively built tailings that have been approved by local governments. And so they really don't want to touch anything unless you want to take on the liability yourself, which we don't want to do. Now, there are examples in the world of of like in Sardinia, there's a Canadian mining company that left a mess behind there. We're looking at that very closely right now. Again, it's arsenopyrite. There's something in the West Coast of Canada in, in British Columbia that just, I just signed an NDA on it this morning. The opportunities are there. And usually the older and the nastier they are, the more willing is a government to do something with you to solve the problem. What's the best way to reach you? I guess just here in the office in Toronto. All the details are on our website. Emails are very good as well because it gives me time to think about what you're asking and get back to you with a, a relatively sane answer. The ability for somebody or a group to take control of this situation for very little capital exists. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody about how we could go about doing that. 
Ross, this has been a great conversation. I look forward to visiting with you in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us today on the program. Thanks, Alice. Hope to see you at PDAC here in Toronto in a couple weeks. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with a CSE as BAC. That symbol again is BAC. And on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. You can download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. Backtech is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Giannis Sitos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Gold Source is a junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. I have to ask you, Giannis, why should people invest in the sector? And more specifically, consider investing in gold source mines. I would like to say for three reasons. Number one is the team. We have assembled a great team with tremendous experience, management and board of directors, more than 200 years of combined experience in the mining industry, ranging from discoveries of deposits, but most importantly, development of deposits into mines economic mines and production. So on top of that, if you add the operating team in Guyana, which has experience from past operators, we have assembled a great team and that's a recipe for success. Number two point is the quality of the asset. Here we are talking about a gold mine, a deposit that is very close to infrastructure. So we're only eight kilometers from a close community where we draw upon our workforce. And on top of that, the easiness of extraction of gold. We talk about mining 1.5 grams per ton gold on surface on a soft rock. So this management specifically has experience in running this type of development projects of, uh, you know, kind of with easy extraction, which is translated to low operating costs. And that's extremely important for any investor to understand. Here we talk, and we still have to prove it, obviously, but out of the independent compliant engineering studies to about $480 per ounce of production in terms of cash costs only in Guyana. This will put us in the lowest quartile of the market. And the third and most important is the timing. We are just commissioning the mine. Effectively, we initiated production. This is a phase where you try now your development. We completed the construction at the end of January. Gold production is imminent in the coming couple of weeks and full commercial production sometime in March. So there's no better timing for somebody to invest in that kind of setup. I'm sure there are those that may question the viability of operating in South America. What is the risk in Guyana? Yeah, Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America, so therefore I wouldn't classify it as Latin America. Effectively, it's a part of Commonwealth, it's a Caribbean state located in South America, an ex-British colony, people speaking English with robust law that is based on British and American standards, and a secular democracy that is stable. The most important part of the GDP of the country in terms of economic activity comes from the extraction of or the resource sector, mining, gold and bauxite, oil and gas and forestry. So this is a supportive regime with very friendly people in a good uh, law environment where is protection of foreign investment. So as Gorsos Mines, we operate there for about six years now. But uh, personally, I used to be with BHP Billiton, so I operate in Guyana for more than 16 years. You, of course, are aligned as a sister company of another sponsor of this program, Silvercrest Metals, sharing in large part their management team. Tell us why you decided to join this team. 
because of the quality of the team and, and the breadth. They have been there, they have done it in the past in a couple of occasions and they try to do it again under the new setup at uh, Silvercrest Metals. But it's a great team of engineers and people that are bootstrapped, hands on the ground and extremely cautious with every dollar. So that combined with my philosophy of the phase development approach. So Eric Fear is the COO of Bolsos Mines. He's the president of Silvercrest Metals. This is mainly the main relationship but the whole management of Silvercrest is part of the management of Goldsource. Then we have some additional people. The people, uh, this kind of development companies, I would say, is the essence and the heart of any project. When you want to go ahead, you have to trust your team, and this is a team to be trusted. With the fact that you are basically heading into production, it must be very satisfying for you. Yeah, there is a sense of accomplishment, obviously, given the conditions at the market at the moment for the commodities industry. And no doubt, Colossus has been seen as a jewel. The feedback I get out of peer presidents and other friends in other companies, we see that we have done a lot of things in the last two years. I believe that trust has been built from the point of view that whatever we said two years ago when we merged the two companies and we put the domino effect started at that time, I would say, Whatever we promised, we did. And we did it on time and on budget. And that's very big for this industry. I've been speaking with Yana Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties of prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Now, you've had success in the past, along with your management team, with a previous incarnation called Silvercrest Mines, and that company successfully sold to First Majestic Silver. You've been reborn as Silvercrest Metals under the symbol SIL with the same management team. We're just trying to do it all over again. Same success we had Silvercrest Mines or the old Silvercrest. Basically, what we did with that company in 2006, we made a discovery in Mexico. We took that discovery into a major producer by 2012, 2013. It was done on a phased approach business model. We started out small, we generated cash flow, and from that cash flow, we grew that asset. And it got to a point where Silvercrest Mines was a one asset wonder in the industry with a great reputation. We felt it was time to take that one asset and do a deal with First Majestic Silver. And the deal that was done was basically we became owners in a major silver producer of about 23% interest. The Silvercrest Mines or Old Silvercrest shareholders got a big portion of that producer, which has 
a good following and good respect in the industry. And along with that deal, we did a spinoff, and this is the spinoff, Silvercrest Metals, or SIL on the market. Well, we brought in about $5 million in cash. We raised another $2.5 million, about $7.5 million in cash. So we are a cash-rich Canadian junior explorer in Mexico. And we're looking at doing this all over again. It's a lot easier this time because we got money in the bank. When we first created Silvercrest Mines in mid-2000s, we had very little to no money and very little following. We're looking at just creating more shareholder value and doing it again. And you intend on doing that with your flagship property, Las Chispas, also located in Sonora State, Mexico, not far, of course, from the Santa Elena mine, which you sold to First Majestic. Part of the success formula all along that we've had now bringing that into Silvercrest Metals was to look at things that were simple. They're easy to get to, good infrastructure. We know the area. It's in the state of Sonora. Great access. One of the things that's important when you're trying to explore, develop, and produce It helps a lot to be about in the same time zone. I can fly down to site the same day and make critical decisions. That's very important for executive management to have that kind of access. Las Chispas was carved out of the deal with First Majestic as a spinoff. It's located about 25 kilometers north of the successful Santa Elena mine, or about a 45 to 55 minute drive. In the backyard of currently a producing mine, it's also located about the same distance from the Mercedes mine, which is a Yamana mine. That's one of Yamana's flagships and their only producer in Mexico. A great location and area to be exploring. We're looking at spending about $750,000 to a million dollars this year of our $7.5 million that's in the bank account for a discovery at Las Chispas. Las Chispas was a significant silver gold producer between 1880 and 1930. It produced down to the water table. There's approximately 20 epithermal veins. Only three of those have had any production. Their previous production was about 100 million ounces of silver and 200,000 ounces of gold. We do have direct access to a lot of underground workings right now with good values right at the face. We're just kicking off a rehabilitation program for the project. We're going to open those underground workings. There may be some high-grade material right out in front of us. When I talk high-grade, average grade of production was 1.7 kilos of silver per ton and about 15 grams per ton gold. With a share price of near 15 cents, it would be safe to say potentially that there's a lot of room for upside. We're trading at below cash value right now, if you want to call that upside. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. He was born on the eastern coast of Italy in a small town that today only boasts about 50,000 people. But the Second World War in Europe was enough for his parents, after the loss of so much family, to move to Canada, where they had relatives. It's hard for a young man to be uprooted from his native country and shipped halfway around the world at the tender age of 14. I know from personal experience. But it instilled in him the ideals of fortitude and perseverance. He studied philosophy and commerce and got a bachelor's degree in 79. A few years later, his master's degree from the University of Windsor and finally a law degree in 1983. Such a brilliant man with such a good education, he was picked up by a prestigious accounting firm right away in Canada. 
His career path would move briskly as he went from Director of Corporate Development at one place to Vice President of Finance and CFO at another, and became CEO in 1997 of a firm based in Zurich, Switzerland. But it wouldn't be until 2004 that he would have a profound impact on the American car scene. You see, it was in 2004 that Sergio Marchionne, born in Italy and raised in Canada, would become CEO of Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. Sergio is a very hands-on leader. He prefers to have his office on the fourth floor with the engineers rather than the penthouse suite at FCA, which is now empty. To listen to and to speak to him, you can feel his heart is in his work. Well-educated and multicultural, probably his worst vice is smoking. When the Viper was in development for reissue, it was Sergio that came down and sat in the prototype and felt the interior was not enough high-quality material. And so, the Viper got new clothes. And while the Viper's resurgence may be only temporary, as its continuation is in doubt, the dynamic leadership Sergio provides to FCA will hopefully firm up the corporation and the wonderful line of cars with a permanent place in the automotive scene. In his hands are the futures of Maserati, Alfa Romeo, Fiat, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and Chrysler. Ferrari was spun off recently, but that's a story for another time. I'll just say that Sergio is a man with a plan. A plan to grow Fiat Chrysler Automobile to sales of $7 million by 2018, although he has to deal with changing circumstances in a global theater. One example is the change in plans for Alfa Romeo due to the Chinese economy slump. We think Sergio is the right man for the right time and the right job at FCA. But like Alan Mulally at Ford, he won't be there forever. Let's hope the training program at FCA for his successor will keep the ball rolling for years to come. Now it's time for your Car Kicks Car Quiz. In 1915, the Aircraft Research Laboratory was started in Japan to help develop the new aviation industry that was spreading around the world. Mr. Nakajima was in charge, and the company would bear his name in 1932. Not only were they Japan's first aircraft manufacturer and a major supplier during World War II, but the company held considerable engineering power. After the war, they were no longer allowed to make aircraft and the company was dissolved into a cluster of spin-offs. One made engines, one made scooters, one was a coach builder and one was a trading company. And there were others. One spin-off company was reborn with the purpose of making Rabbit brand scooters with spare aircraft parts from the war. The company would eventually produce a prototype car named the P-1, but P-1 was only a temporary name. Company employees were asked to suggest a new name. In the end, it was named for a cluster of stars, the name that would stick with the car to this very day. Was it A. Datsun, B. Mitsubishi, C. Subaru, or D. Nissan? We'll have the answer in just a moment. Just like to take a moment and call out CarParts.com. It isn't just a website, it's a team of people dedicated to getting you the right part at the best price. My experience with them was excellent. The part arrived damaged from shipping. It was expensive and heavy. CarParts.com didn't miss a beat. With one contact to customer service, a new part was flying on its way fast. Try CarParts.com. They have over a million parts and accessories. They have high-performance parts that'll help your engine churn out more power, or just that hard-to-find replacement part. Their large selection of parts combined with their user-friendly interface makes shopping easy. Finding your needed components is a snap because of the features on their site. They offer a low price guarantee as well with every product that they offer. Shipping is fast. As I said, my experience was absolutely stress-free. Excellent customer service and no sweat problem resolution. I endorse them as a quality provider. Use CarParts.com next time you need a part for your daily driver. Hot rod, classic, or off-road vehicle. CarParts.com. 
You wouldn't drink and drive. That would be stupid. But what most people don't realize is that texting has become an even greater danger. Many people assume the problem is mostly teens, but that's not the case. In fact, almost half of all uh, grown-up adults admit to texting while driving. 50% compared to only 34% of teens. Distracted drivers were responsible for over a half a million police-reported crashes in 2008 alone. That's just huge. Half a million crashes. Hey, keep your attention on the road, not on cell phones and other mobile devices. It's easy. Just ignore it. If you can't do that, put the device in your trunk. And if you can't do either of those, don't drive a vehicle at all, because I'm driving here. I know you can't control how other people use their phones. You can control how and when you use yours. So turn off your phone before you turn on your car. If your car's cool enough, leave the radio off too. There's some music. This message brought to you by your friends at carkicks.com. And now the answer to your Car Kicks car quiz. The answer is C, Subaru. It seems none of the people canvassed for the name of the new company gave an answer that management felt was suitable. So in the end, they named the car the Subaru 1500. Subaru being the name of the Pleiades star cluster in Japanese. They would go on to produce the Subaru 1000, which was their first boxer engine in 1965. If you answer D, Nissan, there's an element of correctness to your answer because Nissan acquired 20% of the company in 1968 as the government tried to merge the Japanese auto industry to improve competitiveness worldwide. It's rumored that Subaru was the matchmaker for Renault and Nissan during the period when Renault was looking for an all-wheel drive technology company. In the United States, Subaru was established in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania by, of all people, Malcolm Bricklin. Yes, of the Bricklin car fame and relocated to New Jersey. Today, Subaru uses their boxer engine and symmetrical all-wheel drive to be a favorite among people who need fuel economy and a bit of off-road capability. The Impreza WRX model is known for its speed, rally capability, and rally cross capabilities. And that's your Car Kicks Car Quiz. Imagine a car 54 inches long and 41 inches wide, roughly the size of a lawn tractor, just big enough to squeeze in a six-footer and a shopping bag. Originally built on the Isle of Man in the 60s, only 15 were made and only 14 exist of the originals. It weighs under 200 pounds and there's no reverse gear. So if you want to turn around, you simply get out of the car, lift it up by its rear bumper, and turn it around. These few original cars can fetch $200,000 at auction. But fear not, smaller than micro car lovers, the Peel P50, the world's smallest car, is now being remanufactured in the UK. The iconic car of the 60s can be found online at peelengineering.com. And while it probably won't pass United States automotive standards, it is licensable in the UK. Each one is hand-built by a team of skilled professionals at Peel Engineering, and they're made to their owner's specifications. If you search around enough, you'll see quite a few variations. It's been featured in China and the UK on Top Gear, and in the United States on the Science Channel's how it's made, and on YouTube. It's easy to find there. Just search P-E-E-L P-50. And while the Challenger Hellcat may sport 707 horsepower, the mighty Peel P-50 will race you to the market at a top speed of 38 miles per hour with a strapping 4.5 horsepower. If you could buy one in the U.S., it would likely run in the fifteen dollars to $16,000 price range, making it an acquired taste for urban dwellers. Since the late 50s, we've seen more and more small cars. But the Peel still retains the title of world's smallest production car. And speaking of small cars, in America we have Paul Elio, who is developing a sub-$7,000 three-wheeled vehicle 
that seats three people and gets 84 miles per gallon. The car's not yet in production, and a lot of online comments grumbled that it's been a long time in development. But building a car company from scratch in the United States is no easy feat with all the regulations involved. According to Forbes, Elio has managed to raise funds for engineering and development via crowdfunding on Start Engine. They were hoping to raise $25 million, but only got $17 million. Is that enough? If and when the production model does see the light of day and winds up in consumer hands, it'll be quite an achievement. There are already 50,000 reservations for an Elio on the books. The expected delivery date for the first Elio to roll off the line is the end of 2016. The Elio has been in the news so long now, since 2009, and the challenges to meet matters of 84 miles per gallon and under $7,000 list price are certainly not easy to meet. But the real challenge will be, with so many passing delivery dates and so many requirements, can the Elio arrive at the end of this year? It took the hard work of Darwin Stapleton of Rockefeller Archive Center to bring to light some of the amazing history of the early automotive industry I'm about to share with you. You see, back then, automobiles and parts were made in different parts of the country. Even today, not everything comes from Detroit. Although Detroit did rise to be the leader in automotive manufacturing in America. But let's step back for a moment, back to the beginning. When the automobile was developed in Germany and France in the 1880s and 1890s, Americans were in the machinery business, but horses and bicycles were the way to get around, and motor vehicles in Europe were still a plaything of the rich. The realization that the automobile was about to come of age, based on reports from Europe, got the American manufacturers into the game. And it was those with the machining skills and processes that were best equipped to take on the challenge of a new industry. Bicycle makers and carriage makers most of all. One of those was a Scottish immigrant, who came to the Midwest United States in 1884 and started, no surprise, a bicycle company. Bicycles of the day had chain and sprocket drive, wire spoke wheels, tubular frames, and rubber tires. All they needed was an internal combustion engine and perhaps two more wheels. Alexander Winton studied the internal combustion engine and built his first automobile in 1896. His next automobile would have two horsepower, he showed it off to the press by driving between two cities near his shop. He hoped that if he could make a standardized model, the public would respond and he could see some regular demand. You see, even in Europe, automobiles were made to order. They weren't lying about in showrooms. By now, Winton had formed the Winton Motor Car Company. In 1898, he sold his first car, and it marked the beginning of the American automobile industry's transition from experimentation to real manufacture. Winton understood publicity and made sure the press was literally on board in 1899 when he drove from his hometown to New York City. When he arrived, he drew crowds and perhaps as many as a million people saw the car. A few years later, with a new and improved automobile, he drove from San Francisco to New York in 64 days, setting a distance and endurance record. The idea of commercial vehicles hadn't escaped him either. He added a business wagon section to the factory in 1900, making panel trucks. Winton was quite an innovator and is believed to be the first manufacturer to use the steering wheel as standard equipment, rather than the tiller, which was common on the earliest automobiles. The multi-plate clutch, the eight-cylinder motor, and pneumatic self-starter were other creations from Winton's shop. By 1910, other manufacturers were innovating as well. Manufacturing techniques were making strides. And while he still made a great car, the competition was heating up, and Alexander Winton turned to diesel engines for ships. 
I'm telling you this story because while there are many automobile manufacturers popping out at this time in American history, very few had their focus on making durable, simple cars rather than high-priced transportation for the wealthy. Things are relative, though, and back then, the price of his standard automobile was $1,000. And after his success at the turn of the century, he began producing 25 cars a week, and the price rose to $2,000. He built a new factory and employed 1,500 workers producing commercial vehicles like delivery trucks and even a race car. By the close of the first decade of the 20th century, he had produced 18 automobile models, and the Winton Motor Car Company in 1915 produced 2,450 automobiles. But when it came to producing a low-priced automobile for the common man, Henry Ford was hard to beat. Market pressures would drive production down to just 690 cars in 1922. The Winton Motor Car Company ceased production in February of 1924, and Winton focused on diesel engines for ships and locomotives primarily. Still successful. He would sell the company to General Motors in 1928, and a dynamic Alexander Winton passed in 1932. Now it's time for your Car Kicks Car Quiz. At the beginning of the story, we mentioned that this Alexander built his empire outside of Detroit. Was it in A, South Bend, Indiana, B, Chicago, Illinois, C, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or D, Cleveland, Ohio? We'll have the answer in just a moment. You wouldn't drink and drive, that would be stupid. But what most people don't realize is that texting has become an even greater danger. Many people assume the problem is mostly teens, but that's not the case. In fact, almost half of all, uh, grown-up adults admit to texting while driving. 50% compared to only 34% of teens. Distracted drivers were responsible for over a half a million police-reported crashes in 2008 alone. That's just huge! Half a million crashes! Hey, keep your attention on the road, not on cell phones and other mobile devices. It's easy! Just ignore it! If you can't do that, put the device in your trunk. And if you can't do either of those, don't drive a vehicle at all, because I'm driving here! I know you can't control how other people use their phones. You can control how and when you use yours. So turn off your phone before you turn on your car. If your car is cool enough, leave the radio off too. There's some music. This message brought to you by your friends at CarKicks.com. The answer is D, Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland was at the leading edge of automotive development. When you look at the innovation from all of the Ohio bicycle makers, like the Wright Brothers and Thomas White, it's quite a list of achievements. Congratulations, Cleveland. And that's your Car Kicks Car Quiz. As a boy raised in Cleveland, there's a great sense of pride that goes along with telling this story. But Alexander Winton wasn't the only automobile manufacturer to pop up in Cleveland. Walter Baker, a ball bearing manufacturer, was one of the first all-electric car makers. His first electric had 10 batteries and a whopping three-quarter horsepower motor. After 20 minutes of driving, the batteries had to be recharged. But since it was quiet and clean, urban ladies fell in love with it. But as the internal combustion engine made its headway, Baker turned to industrial electric vehicles for factories. Another Cleveland automobile manufacturer whose name is still seen on highways today was Thomas H. White. Perhaps one of his great claims to fame is being the other famed steam manufacturer besides Stanley of Stanley Steamer fame and one of the nation's most famous heavy truck makers. I'm sure you've heard of White Freightliner, now part of Daimler Trucks North America. Another, Euclid, maker of huge construction off-roaders, is also from Cleveland, now part of Hitachi Construction Trucks. Cleveland may not be Detroit, but being number two was good for employment. GM had bought Winton's diesel plant, 
And after World War II, the three dominant American automakers made major investments in the Cleveland area. By 1947, there were 36 motor vehicle and parts companies in the Cleveland district, employing some 22,450-some people, more than 10% of the total industrial workforce. It would grow, too. GM's automatic transmissions and Fisher body. Ford had two engine plants, including the plant that built the 351 Cleveland. And Chrysler had a stamping plant. Many large makers of parts and accessories were there, too. It was a growing business climate, and by the 60s, employment stood at 37,383, about 13% of Cleveland's total manufacturing force. Another surprise from Cleveland's car industry is Claude Forster, who created the Gabriel Horn and Shock Absorber Company. That's right, today's well-known Gabriel Shocks may even be on your car right now, came from Cleveland. They may have a hard luck football team and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Cleveland belongs right alongside Detroit in the Automotive Hall of Fame. For Car Kicks, I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.